Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollest, and this week we're turning our focus to Labour, looking at the party's path to power as they sit around 20 points clear in the opinion polls as we begin the countdown to the next general election. Joining me to look at Keir Starmer's reshaping of Labour post the Jeremy Corbyn era, the squeezing of the left and the party's policy direction as it tries to win back seats for the Conservatives, is Neil Lawson, director of the centre-left campaign organisation Compass, Abdi Duale, a member of Labour's ruling National Executive Committee, as well as Morgan Jones, a reporter for the website Labour List. So starting with you, Morgan, so you were kind of post the conference period, we had the King's speech this week with the government setting out their agenda. What's kind of the state of Labour at the moment? Is it kind of all rosy in Starmer's garden, as I pointed out there, well clear in the opinion polls have been for, you know, months, if not another year now, so... I mean, I think the party came out of conference feeling extremely confident and feeling very happy with how it went. It was a very, very smooth conference. They got the policy they out they wanted. There was no sort of major membership fights. There was no, you know, shadow cabinet members or shadow ministers saying something awful at a fringe. It was all very smooth. And then we came off that and straight into two by-elections where Labour, frankly, smashed it. So mm. they feel... Yeah, extremely happy and quite bullish, I would say. Obviously, party management is an issue that never goes away. It's not an entirely smooth time in the Labour Party at the moment because there is a lot of internal discussion about what the position should be on the conflict in Israel and Gaza. But overall, I would say the party is 24 points ahead. There's only so unhappy you can be as as the leader of a political party when that is the case in you know this morning's polling in the Times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Neil, you, you, were, you were at conference. Well. What did you kind of make of, of this year's party conference? It felt like a sort of hollow version of 1996 to me. Lots of people in suits anticipating power and not really knowing why or how. So I think, obviously, on the polling front, I mean, no one could have foreseen the kind of, you know, the crash of the Tories over Partygate and then Truss and Sunak just not performing. And that will probably mean that, you know, I guess that I think it will be closer than people think, but I guess there could be some kind of Labour, Labour-led government after the next ele- election. But it depends whether you want to think about this as winning office or winning power. And what are you going to do with office? And what are you going to do with power? And do you have an intellectual, cultural, ideological, organisational project that you're trying to put in place? Or are you just trying to fall over the line first? And I was really lucky to cut my teeth in the run-up to 97. And whatever you think about the quality of the people and the quality of the programme, the absolute difference between now and then is that when Labour came into power in 97, it did so in the most benign circumstances. 60 consecutive quarters of growth, no big geopolitical issues until Tony Blair had a go at them. Now, look, we're in this perma-crisis world, the most malign economic circumstances, geopolitical, climate, you name it. Are we prepared for that intellectually, culturally and organisationally? And I really worry about an incoming Labour government that isn't ready to govern effectively. Mm. Abdi, what do you make of, of that? Yeah, I would I would disagree. I think if you look at the MPF process and everything that Keir and Rachel Reeves, for example, have been talking about, I mean, fundamentally, you can't look at that MPF document and not conclude if they were implemented in government, the country would be a lot more different. I think you're quite right, Neil. The country is in such a different place from where we were in the run-up to 1997, Britain almost feels like it has a identity crisis. You know, we're outside of the European Union. We haven't got our kind of post-Brexit arrangements in order. And we have a war in Europe and a situation in the Middle East, which is becoming even more volatile. So I think the need for caution and actually taking stock of where we are, because we've got another year and we've seen the Conservatives, it took them 40 days to ruin the economy. I think giving them a whole another year 
is going to be interesting in terms of where we land on the other side of that. So I think it's important that Rachel and others are showing that caution that is important to go into government and don't want to ruffle the feathers. I think it's completely sensible to do that, to not make too many spending commitments when you don't know what the books are going to look like when you get to the other side. But do you think that there has been criticism of being sort of overly cautious and I guess you would say that you've got to look to that framework of, of where the country is it's not taking over potentially taking over in a benign period it's going to be taking over in a period when debt's going to be higher GDP growth still massively sluggish huge problems in waiting lists in NHS and all that kind of stuff how do you kind of get that message across saying well we're, we're purposely being quite cautious yeah uh, we're being cautious definitely with the economy and you know we've seen what happens when you're not I give you quasi quartang where we aren't being cautious is actually being bold enough to say we would implement serious changes. And that's, I'm talking about Keir's five missions, for example, his messaging around planning and actually bulldozing through the opposition that tends to rear its head up when it comes to any planning application anywhere, I think is really important. GB Energy, for example, and having a state-owned company that can actually compete in the market, but also give Britain the energy efficiency and the energy security that it needs is hugely important. So I think from a policy perspective, we have a lot of policies that will radically change the country. What we don't have is the money to go alongside that in some regards, and we have to be cautious in terms of how we spend that money. Fundamentally, you can't be in a situation where after 13 years, where the Conservatives are taking a hammer to public services, you need to think carefully about how you reform public services to actually deliver for people. But also, there's not an endless check that you can just keep writing. Mm. And I think that cautiousness from our Treasury team is well-placed. But also, Labour historically has always been done over because of its lack of cautiousness on the economy. So I think it's... We're learning from history and mainly 1992. (laughs) Morgan, after you mentioned there that the Starmer's five pledges or five priorities, you know, I had some Tory MPs on here who couldn't name... Sunak's five priorities, how many kind of Labour MPs or Labour supporters do you think could name those kind of five priorities? And how much is that failure to sort of set out necessarily what is Starmerism enough? I think most Labour MPs could probably tell you all five missions. And I think most Labour supporters probably couldn't. But I think that's mm. because a lot of members are not as engaged as people who might listen to this podcast. Yeah. And But look, I think they address what Labour members are interested in. They address, you know, an NHS, a serious sort of undraconian but like serious address addressing police and crime issues halving vogue is i think something that goes is very good but also goes down very well with the labor membership hmm. neil come back to what you said earlier about kind of what you want to do if you get power i had james schneider on who used to work for jeremy corbyn saying that starmer's pursuing a strategy that will win an election but making the most unpopular person in the uk and saying they need to set out more of a kind of a progressive vision for the country when actually if he does get into power well i think it's partly about vision And it's partly about policy. And I'm sure if all the things that were in the MPF document were implemented, the world will feel a better place. But they're going to come up against all of these forces. And the point of politics isn't just to have policy. 1945, Labour didn't just have policy. It had influential force. It had a strong working class. It had a kind of system of government, Fordism. It had the threat of the Soviet Union, which brought capitalists to the table to do a deal with the workers over the post-war settlement that lasted 30 years. So politics is about big forces. And I see a party that's shrinking to a narrow base of people that think it's all about them sitting on, you know, the right seats with their MPF document in their back pocket, thinking that's what politics is, not thinking about 
what's the big vision? What's the story I'm telling Britain about itself and where it's going? What are the forces in society, in civil society, the trade unions, you know, in communities? What are the links with parties around the globe? I remember with Blair, it was very much Clinton, the third way, it gave them energy. There is no energy. And that all comes together at a time where you cannot look at a social democratic country in the globe that is vibrantly and energetically on the front foot. There is a global crisis of social democracy, not just a potential crisis of the Labour Party. And these weaknesses have to be addressed and looked at if we're not just going to fall over the line, if we're going to do something expansive, pragmatically building on that reasonably good programme, yeah. you have to see politics in a much broader sense. And I think they see politics in a very narrow party management, get over the line, cross your fingers and hope everything is going to be all right. And I'm telling you, it's not going to be. Abdi, I just wonder what you made of that. Do you think that, obviously, we have got another probably another year to an election, maybe a little bit longer, if the Tories drag it out for as long as possible. But do you think that Slama has done enough to set out that vision? And rather than just by testing himself and saying, we're not the Tories, we're not the sort of the party that's the been power for this time and, and, and got things wrong. Do you think he's done enough to set out an alternative vision? I think Keir has. I think most people are probably scarred in the Labour Party from the 2019 result. Any party that lost that badly to, quite frankly, the worst prime minister we have ever had, you have to really look at yourself and say, why have we lost? You can't just blame the British public. And far too many of our colleagues in the Labour Party often do that. I mean, if you want policies... Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto in 2019 wasn't, you know, lacking in policies. It was an Argos-style catalogue of policies that you could look to. But fundamentally, people didn't vote for that. So we have to turn back on ourselves and say, why didn't people vote for that? It's because they didn't think we were being realistic, because we were promising far too much, far too quickly. So I think we have to understand there is a yearning for change, but there's also a yearning for responsibility with that change. Where I would agree with Neil is there has to be a lot more lessons that we need to learn from the SPD in Germany and how uh, they got into government, the Australian Labour Party. I think Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act is a really, really good example of where we can learn around green investment, but also radically changing a country. That piece of policy is so progressive. I was quite surprised that it came from an American president. And I think there are lessons to learn. We saw Rachel's announcement around securonomics, which was kind of playing on that. But we have to understand from where the Labour Party came from and where we are now, we can't let our guard down. We cannot be complacent about where the country is, but more importantly, over the next year, how much damage this government can do. And we see it every single day. The fact that we've got a Home Secretary who's more focused on homeless tents than actually the national security of this country. So we're not dealing with adults or grown-ups on the opposition side. They are willing to go to any depths and any gutter to like win another election. So I think we have to be cautious of that, conscious of that, and win people around and give them an alternative to vote for. I think that's really important. You can't just say we're not the Conservatives. We need to give people a real reason to vote Labour, to come out optimistically vote Labour as well. Welcome back. The next segment is brought to you by Mastercard. Whether it's protecting consumers from fraud or supporting small businesses, Mastercard's mission is to connect and power an inclusive digital economy that benefits everyone. I have with me Natasha Jamal, Vice President Social Impact at the Centre for Inclusive Growth, Mastercard's philanthropic hub. She also oversees the organisation's global small business initiative, Strive. Through a range of philanthropic programmes, including one in the UK, Strive aims to help build the resilience of more than 5.5 million micro and small businesses around the world. So firstly, Natasha, what is kind of the environment, I suppose, for small businesses? Now, we move from a global pandemic to a cost of living crisis and 
what are the kind of issues that MasterCard uh, are trying to solve at the moment? Yeah, so let me start maybe by stating the obvious here, which is that small businesses are in many ways the backbone of the UK economy. They represent 99% of all businesses. They account for half of all UK business turnover, and they employ two-thirds of the working population. So we know here that the pandemic was particularly challenging for small businesses, partly because many of them operated in industries that were hardest hit, including retail, hospitality, and tourism. Unfortunately, coming out of the pandemic, the backdrop for small businesses remains fairly challenging. In fact, according to our latest business barometer research with surveys about a thousand small businesses in the UK, rising costs have essentially replaced the pandemic as a major concern for small business owners, with a fifth of them feeling extremely negative about their future and close to 60% saying the cost of living is stifling entrepreneurship and innovation. And this is obviously having a very negative impact on their mental health as well. Now, despite all of this, there does seem to be a light at, at the end of the tunnel, if you could believe that. Businesses are more effectively using technology and digital tools, for example, to cut costs and drive growth. And certainly digitalization has accelerated since the pandemic. But more than three quarters of the entrepreneurs that we surveyed said that technology is helping them to save time. And 60% believe the right digital tools allow them to retain and grow their customer base. Oh, that's really interesting. So can you give us some kind of examples then of, of the program and what it's done for, for SMEs here in the UK then? Yeah, so through Strive UK, we're providing small business owners with free access to training and resources to tackle a wide range of their business challenges and, and essentially helping them to digitalize. When we created Strive UK, we wanted to build on existing support, and it was really important for us to work with existing partners on the ground. And so we're now working with three partners that are helping us roll out the program. Our first, Enterprise Nation, has established what we call a one-stop shop platform. It's essentially a platform where we're curating all of the resources and services to support small businesses in one place. Entrepreneurs can go onto that platform, take a diagnostic tool called the Make a Plan tool, and essentially that will help them really hone in on what their challenges are and then serve them the right resources on the platform that help address those issues. The second partner we're working with is an organization called Be The Business. And through Be The Business, we're providing very targeted, tailored guidance and advice on a one-on-one -on -one basis to entrepreneurs from ethnic minority communities. And we're doing this because we know that minority ethnic business owners face a very unique set of challenges and barriers. They're often left out of mainstream support. They often have greater struggles when it comes to accessing finance. So taking a one-size-fits-all approach to programming inevitably means that the needs of these entrepreneurs are left unaddressed. And that's what we're trying to work through with Be The Business by connecting ethnic minority entrepreneurs to mentors or advisor boards to provide the support. And finally, our third partner is called Digital Boost. They run a digital platform that connects small business owners to expert advisors and coaches that can address very specific challenges. So this is a little bit different from a mentorship model because it's yeah. quite targeted and time sensitive. But essentially, if an entrepreneur has a very specific question around things like social media strategy, for example, or search engine optimization, they can go into the platform, be connected in with an expert who will help sort of navigate them through this issue. If they have another issue around HR or supply chain, they can then get access to a, a whole other expert for this support. So those are the three organizations that we're working with essentially to help build the resilience of small businesses and put them back towards a path towards growth. Right. And so can you give us some examples maybe of the program and what it's done for, for SMEs here in the UK? 
Yeah, so actually one of our Strive ambassadors, Thalia Shaw, is a great example of the impact that Strive UK is having on small businesses. She founded a company called Sparkle Lighting a couple of years ago. And when she started her business, Thalia was struggling with how to leverage digital technology to grow her business. Her husband is in, in the IT sector, so he helped her with the IT specific stuff, but she recognized that there were a lot of skills gaps that she as an entrepreneur had. She ended up connecting into our Digital Boost program and looking for help specifically around digital marketing. Since then, she's connected with a number of experts on the platform who've helped her do a range of things from refining her digital marketing strategy, optimize her customer experiences, and even think of ways to boost her online sales. All of this has factored in, obviously, to her growth, and, and Sparkle Lighting is actually now projected to grow by 50% this year, which is incredible. This is just one example. We have many of entrepreneurs who are using our program, whether it's with Enterprise Nation, Be the Business, or Digital Boost, to really tackle some of the challenges that they're going through and get tangible results and seeing tangible impact on the back of that. Mm. That's really interesting. And obviously, the government have been trying to help for businesses as well. What kind of more do you think the government can do to help SMEs maybe building on that kind of work that, that Strive is doing? Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, the only way to support small businesses at scale and drive true impact is through partnership. The private sector brings technology and expertise, but scalable impact is only possible when we combine the assets of public sector and private sector. To sort of outline a few very specific areas where I think there's opportunities for governments to unlock the potential of small businesses, one is sort of around thinking about incentivizing investment in minority-led businesses. I talked earlier about the very unique challenges and barriers faced by ethnic minority communities in accessing financial support. We know through a report that was put out by an organization called Extend Ventures that between 2009 and 2019, only 1.7% of capital at all stages went to entrepreneurs from Black and multi-ethnic communities. We know that female founders face a similar issue when it comes to accessing funding. And so there's a role here for government to perhaps play in terms of introducing tax incentives and grants specifically aimed at encouraging investments in businesses led by underrepresented minorities. These incentives would motivate investors to fund more diverse ventures, for example. It would foster greater inclusivity and, by the way, would have an immensely positive impact on the economy at large. Research shows, for example, that 250 billion pounds of new value could be added to the UK economy if women started and scaled new businesses at the same rate as men. There's also an opportunity around improving data on ethnic minority business owners. You can't improve what you don't measure. And so the government's, you know, thinking about introducing a national system to collect ethnicity data for entrepreneurs, for example, would be incredibly valuable. This can be done in sort of within structures that exist today. For example, companies house could add an ethnicity field to the annual registration process and include additional questions as part of the management and expectation survey. And finally, there continues to be an interest and a need expressed by small businesses for financial support to invest in technology. In fact, as part of our survey, 28% of small businesses told us that grants or subsidies would help them to grow their business if they were able to put those towards leveraging technology. The important thing here, though, is to tie that financial support to personalized support and training. In isolation, financial grants and subsidies often fall short because we know that the smallest businesses, who instantly are the businesses that stand to benefit the most from digitalization, are also the businesses that fail 
most often when it comes to implementing this technology. So availing financial support and grants for technology, but then pairing that support with one-on-one guidance, coaching, mentorship, so that we can really help entrepreneurs go through that entire journey of digitalization and really make it successfully to the end is critical. Now, returning to our conversation about labour, Morgan, do, the MPs that you speak to on, on, on labour side, do they feel they want to see a bit more? That Often the metaphor is always, you know, that carrying the vase across a ballroom and not wanting to drop it when you've got this kind of pollen. But do you think do MPs you speak to, do they, do they think that Starmer's done enough to set out enough of a progressive kind of vision to win an election? I think I speak to a lot of MPs and kind of general party figures who are quietly like, you know, they think we could be doing a bit more. They think we could be setting out bolder things. I mean, I find it quite interesting that we have now said that we're not going to do right to Rome reform. And it's like, why why are we not doing that? There's all these kind of small things around the contested 28 billion and Rachel Ruse's economic plans, I think, have have pretty consistent buy in across the party. But I think then there is the, the quiet, you know, are we really going far enough here? Yeah, and there's been suggestions that there's been sort of U-turns on some of those policies that which has allowed sort of Tory attack ads about Starmer flip-flopping on policy, but also the kind of the stuff they'd set out, some quite big sort of constitutional reforms, and mm. now suggesting oh, that might be a second term thing, which is kind of code normally for we're not really going to do it, we're going to do it if, if, only if, if the conditions are, are right. If you sense any disquiet with some of that, or do you think that it's it's about pursuing that kind of kind of more ruthless strategy to try and to try and claw back you know those seats they lost last time. I think that people are very, they are aware of what the strategy is and they, every member of the Labour Party thinks that the worst Labour government is best than the best Tory government and yeah. they believe that we need that. I was interested to see Neil saying that, you know, this a party focused too much on party management because I think that's probably one of Starmer's great weaknesses, that, you know, we are doing good policy stuff but often there's these unnecessary factional internal fights that spill over into the into the press and mm. it's just my job so I see it maybe I have a distorted view yeah yeah it's definitely happening yeah no it's definitely happening and so you know there's these sort of things that at the moment are we're 24 points ahead but when you one need to get your base out to campaign for a general election when you need to get people pounding the streets and doing hard work for free that comes back to people two years down the line when you're in government and maybe not as popular and you're trying to get your people onto the NEC that comes back to you yeah, interesting. You talk about the kind of those party management stuff and, and, and internal stuff. One of the things that you guys have been tracking at Labour List is selections. And sort of Abdi, as an NEC member, sits on selection panels. You know, what we've kind of made of the process so far, it's not been without its controversy. There's been about 150 so far, maybe only a couple that you would say on the, on the left. And there's been criticism that, that left-wing candidates are being squeezed out of the process sometimes for what they just say is sort of spurious reasons. So I think the first thing to say is that this is the first time we've had a proper full selection process yeah. since you know 2014 13 14 because for the last two general elections have been snap general elections yeah. and frankly you select quite a lot of bad candidates when you select very quickly over the snap processes and you know i think it was starmer said i don't want any more jared omaras or any more mike hills or fiona onasanya who or, ended up in prison yeah exactly and you know we could sit here and list the MPs who are not not great, both Labour and Tory. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a good then. idea for a podcast. Yes, yes. And now we move on to the liars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but you could. Yeah. And I think Starmer's naming some MPs who were that is evidence of that. And so yeah. I think I absolutely understand why there's been a 
a tighter and more thorough process than than I would have seen in my life in the party, than Abdi would have seen in his life in the party, possibly not Neil. But but Abdi, like I said, you and I spoke about uh, selections and stuff before, and you've 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 admitted that perhaps there's sometimes needs to be more diversity in terms of uh, black and ethnic minority candidates. Do you think there needs to be more diversity in terms of getting more left wing candidates out there, or do you think that the, the process so far has been been fair in how it's dealt with that that uh, side of things? Yeah, I think the process has been fair entirely how it's gone. I think. The, the crop of them, the candidates that you get always in some way reflect close to the leadership, regardless of who the leader is. That's always happened in the Labour Party. But you're quite right. One thing that Keir didn't want is a repeat of the Honor Sunyas and the Jared O'Maras of this world. And that's what happened in 2017, 2019. But like when you come from the base of 2019, and this is the biggest round of selections that we've done in quite a long time because of the number of seats that we lost you really have to make sure that the due diligence of those candidates is tightly checked. The Tories, up until now, because we're spending a lot more money actually vetting our candidates, the Tories have always spent a lot more money than us doing due diligence into our own candidates. Mm. Oh yeah, my so, inbox used to be full, when, especially when I worked at The Sun, were full of like emails from Conservative Central Office with, you know, of, of what candidates might have, Labour candidates might have said or done on social media and that sort exactly, of stuff. Exactly, and it's just like, if we're not weeding them out, and there are plenty of people that want to be Labour MPs, it's a privilege, of course it is, it's a privilege to represent your hometown, your constituency, that where you're from, and that's really important. But, you know, if you're going to bring the party into disrepute, then we're not going to stand for it. And that is quite right that we don't tolerate that at all. In terms of diversity, I have constantly said we're not doing enough on black, Asian and minority ethnic selections. You know, Labour selected, I think, four, four black candidates now. Now, that's on top of the really good kind of diversity sections that we got in 2017, 2019. That was partly because the NEC imposed most of those candidates. And you can actually, when you've got a kind of an Excel sheet, you can be like, OK, well, you know, we need to work on this representation. But the, the problem we're seeing is quite a lot of black and Asian minority ethnic members are getting to long lists and short lists. They're not, they're not being blocked by the party. But when it goes to the membership, the members aren't voting for them. So that is, there's a challenge there that we need to also recognise. Mm. But, you know, when some people hear due diligence, yeah. they, they hear the idea that, you know, that's being used as a way to, to squeeze out some of those left-wing candidates. Michael Crick, who knows his stuff about the selection, was saying he reckons that, you know, Kinnock, Prescott, maybe and Angela Rayner wouldn't get through the current processes that, that you're putting candidates through. Yeah, I think what the difference between the last process we had was that the BHRC didn't investigate the Labour Party for racism and actually a really big bulk of the due diligence we find on people is something to do with anti-Semitism mm. and it obviously wouldn't be fair to you know individually respond to them on Twitter and say well actually this is why you've been blocked and it's quite easy for people to say oh I liked a tweet from Nicola Sturgeon and that's why I'm being blocked that's not the case we were morally bankrupt in 2019 when we lost that election but also being investigated by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission that we set up under the Equalities Act in 2010, that they were investigating us for racism was a shame for the Labour Party. So you have to be tough on it. There are no excuses. You know, the, the examples are people like signing petitions to let people back in who've been kicked out for anti-Semitism, for example, and all that type of stuff. And that is just completely unforgivable. There's no apologies that we're making for it at all. I mean, I suppose the, the counter that a lot of people would say was, well, yes, if we have this high threshold, that's very good, but... Are we applying that high threshold evenly across the political factions of the party? I mean, there are some some PPCs who have emerged, have said or done things that would not meet that standard. And some MPs, frankly, I mean, we have, you know, various MPs who would not meet that. And their questions are always, it's difficult, the interaction of like disciplinary and political, because you do need to consider both. Can we tie those two bits of that conversation together? Because you, you mentioned 2019 
you know, that was a bad election loss for Labour. But it was a bad election loss for lots of reasons. Labour's position on Brexit, where, you know, was a mess, and it was the mess created by partly by Keir Starmer. You know, it was a Brexit election. The same policies in 2019 did incredibly well in 2017. Lots of people want to airbrush that out of history. People do want radicalism. And there is no reason why we couldn't be advocating a wealth tax now. There's no reason why we couldn't be giving kids free school meals, that we couldn't be looking at that full set of, of democratic reforms, that we couldn't be doing rent controls. All these things would be incredibly popular and we decided not to do them. Now, Tie that back to the, what's happening with the factionalism within the party. I've never known a time when the governance of the party has been run by a tiny political faction from the party that have now secured control. People from Labour to Win, people from Labour First, people from Progress, these are the ones who are now deciding on the governance you know, and, and the breadth of the party. And it looks incredibly deliberate, it looks incredibly systematic that they're trying to reshape the party in a, in a particular way. And, and that's always happened to some degree within the party. I was there in the 80s in the battles with Militant and trying to kick those people out. I of course recognise that parties need boundaries of professionalism and some political limits. Having revolutionary socialists as entrists is not acceptable. Having people who are mildly of the soft left becoming candidates is ridiculous and it's ridiculous to the extent that it shows up your insecurity and your lack of confidence that you don't want to engage with those people and it ends up in that tight little circle that has no bandwidth, no feedback loops, no other alternative views. And you start making really, really bad decisions. The, the Labour Party has always been a plural body. It should always be a plural body. And it's now being run by a small clique to reinforce the power of that small clique. And I tell you, nothing good will come of it. Yeah, well, look, the Labour Party has always been, uh, it's always had a left wing and a right wing in the party. And we've always challenged each other intellectually, debated policies. And that's a very healthy place for a party to be in. But I simply disagree. I mean, if you're telling me the Corbyn years wasn't actually 10 times worse than what we've currently got, the Corbyn years constantly They were rubbish focused. at it. That's the difference. <laughs> they were terrible at it. They, had, they liked they to have so thought much. they were good at it and they were rubbish. Well, they well, didn't the, actually achieve any deselections, did they? Whereas obviously no, Starmer has actually achieved no, deselection no, in no. terms of uh, Sam Tarry. I mean, I th the left and right of the party, the, the extreme left and the extreme right part of the party are very similar. They won't tolerate any kind of pluralism and it's always the soft left in the middle, which is the bulk of the party membership that wants that kind of breadth and that broadness and the left and right throw rocks at each other. It just so happens that the right and the party now are incredibly well organised. Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, the Corbyn is they had all the power that they needed. They had the NEC and they couldn't get their ducks in a row. You know, is it any surprise that they lost to the worst prime minister that we've ever had? But, you know, I think simply instilling that discipline within the party is quite important. You know, it's quite easy for us to have really internal conversations about, you know, constitutional reforms, and that's all well and good. But that doesn't speak to the ordinary family that is struggling to make ends meet at the moment. It doesn't. And if we're not talking to them and talking to ourselves, then we're doing a disservice to the people that need a Labour government the most. And, you know, if you're going to tell me Starmer's strategy is awful and it's terrible, well, the polling doesn't recognise that. The polling doesn't show that. The by-election results don't show that. In Rutherglen, in Midbeds, in Tamworth, in Selby, all of those constituencies that Labour are winning in, 
the strategy is working. I'd much rather have a conversation, much broader conversation about constitutional reforms once we're in government and actually solving some of the more fundamental issues that people are facing. Well, I I think that poll lead is largely, and the polls show this, is down to the Tories being terrible and Labour not being good. On the issue of constitutional reform, when you operate under a system of first past the post, what you do is privilege the interests of rich party donors, big media owners, and a few swing voters in a few swing seats, which mean you have to tailor your message to those people. So when you're trying to put bread on people's table, you can't do that because the electoral system mitigates against it. That's why I support proportional representation, because I think it will put more bread on people's table. It will reinforce workers' rights. It will enable us to do things like wealth taxes. That's why I want constitutional reform, not because I think it's some fluffy liberal middle class thing that can wait for a second term. It should be the thing that's done on the first day of a Labour government so we can enact a, a series of policies which will make people's lives better. Morgan, I'm bringing you in. Obviously, we've, as, as Abdi pointed out, every kind of electoral test that's been put in front of Starmer, he's passed, you know, with the sort of flying colours pretty much. Not the Hartlepool by-election. Not the Hartlepool by-election, no. But since Hartlepool, since Hartlepool, things have been pretty plain sailing, as you say, some big by-election wins, big wins at, at local election level. But there are, as you say, still some kind of internal rouses. The big one at the moment is about the policy on Israel and Gaza. This week, we had the first resignation from the shadow frontbench, Imran Hussain, uh, The Guardian reporting, they reckon that there could be four more, more uh, about 10 on resignation watch. What have you kind of made of the way that, that Starmer has fairly maintained a pretty, a pretty strict kind of policy on that, but it's starting to pull apart a little bit at the moment? I mean, I'm not sure he has maintained, I mean, he himself and the party leadership have maintained a strict policy on it. They have said very clearly what their policy is. You know, they had, was it Peter Kyle on media saying, no, there won't be any disciplinary action for the shadow ministers saying that they don't that they don't agree with it that they want to go further another ceasefire that they would prefer a ceasefire and that has been the case so, you know Imran Hussain has resigned but he was not forced out and I think part of that speaks to the fact that it is a issue that goes across factions in a way that is kind of a lot more complicated than is often reported so yeah because you know, he's, he's a member of the socialist campaign group which is quite yeah. rare for a from venture but yeah you're right it's not just but, scg members it's lots of other uh, members of the yeah you know you have you have stephen timms on that adm who's you know former labor chief secretary of the treasury and not a figure of the labor left you no. have you have liam byrne again not a figure of the labor left no you have Rosanna Arlen Khan, who's not a figure of the Labour sort of SCG in that way. In Labourless, we're reporting on the selection that's ongoing in Beckenham at the moment, where you have Mel Ward, who's CEO of Metal Aid for Palestine, for Palestinians rather, running for selection, and again, not a figure of the the Labour left. And so, yeah, you have it. You have this really cross-factional set of views on this. You have John Landsman saying he doesn't approve of a ceasefire. And so, I think Starmer's position reflects that. However, I don't think it's been sensationally well managed. Yeah, Abdi, I wonder what you made of it. Yeah, that's classic for the Labour Party though, isn't it? So, um, Obviously, no one can look at the situation in Gaza right now and not feel emotional about it. It's obviously a really sad situation. And no one can look to the events of October the 7th and not be horrified by 1,400 Israelis killed by Hamas, an awful terrorist organisation. I don't think anyone has sympathy for them in the Labour Party. This is, uh, you know, it affects voters here affect people here and you know people have families but even if they don't people feel emotional about seeing a war breaking out in the Middle East I think what the party has shown actually is that breadth of okay there are different views on whether having a ceasefire or humanitarian pause and actually I think we've done it incredibly in a very classy way 
of actually people disagreeing agreeably. And, you know, Imran, Tati, Imran obviously leave his role. He was taking forward our new deal for working people, which he's done a really good job on. But that's a decision he's made. And, you know, you have to respect that decision. I think for the party, it's just kind of having that respect to say, we're going to agree to disagree on some regards. I think Keir's line on uh, not having a ceasefire, from my perspective, is the right one. And I think the longer that this has gone on, the more that is being proven. Hamas aren't calling for a ceasefire. Hamas are not, haven't stopped sending rockets into uh, Israel. Hamas have not released the 200-odd hostages that they took on October the 7th. And until some of those things are done, I can't see a, a way through with this situation. The front bench position that we've got to now, I think is, is the right one. And it's in line with, it's got international support. Mm. Uh, and that's where Biden and the American administration are at as well. Mm. Neil, I wonder what you made of it. And also, I guess as well, that stance that Starmer's taking in the relationship to those within the party who are calling for a different stance. My colleague Sienna just interviewed the new uh, general secretary of the TSSA union, who's saying that frustrated with sometimes Starmer's untenable positions on issues and, and, and citing this, this Gaza one. Well, I think his whole discipline strategy is kind of blown out of the water by this because you can't say you demand collective responsibility on crossing picket lines and anyone who stands on a picket line or standing on a picket line, you know, and then is then can't be in the, on the front bench and saying that's a golden rule and then saying months later that on this issue, everyone can say and do what they want. Either there is collective discipline or you don't have collective discipline and you can't just chop and change on the issue. But I say it goes back to me to the issue of general pluralism within the party. I mean, after he made that original uh, intervention on radio and then the 10 days it took to kind of begin to correct it or explain it or row back or row forward, whatever, whatever he was doing. It goes back to that view that when you have very tight groups of people that don't open themselves up to other views and other communities and other voices, you tend to get quite a brittle, rigid form of politics. And if that that's what happens in opposition, particularly on a foreign policy issue, where you know, you're know you not under the same spotlight as you are in government. If that's the position in opposition, when you should have more time and space to, to get different views from different communities and different, you know, and when you start to make the, the Labour Party, certainly the leadership, a very narrow enclave of a certain view and not others, then you start making mistakes. And this is what I worry about going into government. Sure, the Tories might throw the election at us and, and lose it, you know, and give it to us on a plate. But if we don't have that depth, that breadth, that pluralism, those different voices, then when these crises come along in government, it's going to be a whole lot worse and a lot more meaningful. Mm. So Jim, before we, before we wrap up, I know you wanted to talk about the kind of progressive alliance stuff. We talked about people getting in trouble for, for tweets. You, you were sort of threatened with expulsion from the Labour Party mm. earlier this year over, over a tweet talking about people using tactical voting. I just wondered what you, you kind of made out. Obviously, at the moment, we're looking like a Labour majority is likely, but it, it might not be. Labour might just be the, the largest party and have to go into some sort of coalition. What do you kind of think of the, I just, that stuff? So ours, there are two different strategies about how progressives win, really. And our view at Compass is that there is nearly always a progressive majority in this country. That doesn't mean to say that those people automatically line up on the progressive side, but by and large, they vote for anti-Tory parties. 
And that majority could be mobilised. It has to be done politically. You have to win those people over and bring them over to that side. But there is a majority there. Thatcherism might not have happened if the left progressive vote doesn't, didn't split in 79 as it splits in every election and lets the Tories through. On average, there are about 100 progressive tragedy seats in the country where the progressive vote is bigger, but we still lose because we, we divide. Because if you go down that strategy route, then you can start appealing to progressive values rather than... Tory values, which you need to do to bring over Tory voters. And given all of this perma-crisis stuff that we've got coming down the track, you know, we need to base our politics on that. We have to bring in PR so that you don't have to do the smoke and mirrors and deals and whatever. But, you know, there is a basis for a long-term deal in our country to deliver on the, on the measures and the policies that people need. And if we don't do this, and this is the bit that really motivates me, if we get into government and don't deliver for people, then the awful, terrible populist authoritarian right that's, that's you know, waiting and preparing itself for power, you know, 12,000 people at the O2 the other week listening to Jordan Peterson, there is a cultural depth to what they're looking at and what they're doing. And they're waiting for Labour to trip up. And if Labour keeps itself in this narrow, first-past-the-post, only-us, closed tribe, you know, we're going to trip up. And that's what we're going to leave the country with. So I think this stuff really matters. Morgan, I saw you nodding your head there to some of that stuff. What, what, what's the kind of the, the, the feelings on, on within the sort of people in the Labour Party on that kind of that progressive stance? Obviously, if we're talking about tactical voting, I think people always hate being told who to vote for. They'd rather just vote for the party they want. And, and so I don't think that's necessarily ever that useful. But the kind of idea of, of, of a progressive alliance uniting those parties that are against the Conservatives... I mean, I was more nodding my head at my uh, abject horror at uh, <laughs> the, the, yeah, no, the 12,000 people going to see Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Peterson yeah. And there is a real kind of growing cultural space for that, like, really nasty far-right populism. And I think Labour is actually often quite complacent about that. Then again, one of the arguments against PR is that it uh, lets those people into politics more easily and lowers the threshold. I spend a lot of time, time, time campaigning in mid-Bedfordshire and there are very few seats that are as that one debatably was a three-way marginal. But yeah. what we saw ultimately was the Lib Dems did run a unpleasant campaign against our candidate, saying he had character issues to address. Yeah, and ultimately he won and I don't think it was a particularly... Overturn one of the largest majorities thing of, of anyone in a by-election. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the Lib Dems did did quite well, but, like, I'm a member of the Labour Party. I'm, I'm tribal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, just before we wrap, uh, last word to you then, then, then Abdi, on this, because obviously there's been a slight, slight negativity around some aspects of, of Labour who are, as I say, well ahead on course to win a general election. Do you see that kind of, if there's a positivity, do you understand that there are sort of pitfalls and traps along the way if, if Labour is to, is to end up uh, as the next government? Yeah, no, I, of course there will be. And I think Keir Starmer's speech highlighted that really well, where he said, you know, wherever you think the line is, the Tories are, already have plans to cross it. So I'm convinced they do. And you see that in some of the rhetoric from the Home Secretary, for example, which is just, it, I mean, just targeting some of the most vulnerable people in our society in such an awful way. I mean, the thing is, no one is safe of it. I mean, the could, police, be quite, it could be quite a rough general election campaign, couldn't it? And no, and no doubt it will be. And I think the more you have a prime minister willing to keep a home secretary like this in office. Well, we'll just be careful because she might have got keeps. sacked by the time this podcast comes <laughs> out. So we'll have to just, we'll have to, Nick might have to edit out uh, so if, we, if we end up in that I, I can also like do a version that says the former home secretary. We'll leave which one of them but, in. But there are, and we have to be conscious of that. I think on the Progressive Alliance, I've always said the Labour Party is the Progressive Alliance's country needs. And, you know, if you think factionism in Labour Party is strong enough, imagine adding the Greens and the Lib Dems. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm horrified by, like, the thought of that. I think 
voters know who to vote for in marginal seats. They know who is second or who's likely to win. And people make those decisions based on that. The one problem I've always had with PR is it would give reform seats in Parliament. You've, you've got Andrew Bridgen, obviously, who's already there, who defected from the Conservatives. First past the post delivered Brexit. Well, it, it ignored people in all of those communities for so long. They felt they had nothing else to do. Uh, I think First the, past the post yeah, creates I th- that pressure cooker, I, I, think, I think, for those kind of those kind of views. I think the argument with PR is actually that the country would always vote for a progressive alliance is just false. And we see that in countries that have PR right across Europe. Also, actually, the arguments around why Labour's lost and saying it's only because of the electoral system takes actual responsibility away from the fact that Labour Party, time and time again, in 2015, in 2017, 2019, failed to speak to the realities of the country. We can paint a world that is rosy and hopeful where everything works. But that's not the world we're in. That's not where Britain is. And I think that realism is coming through now with the Labour Party didn't exist in previous elections. And I think PR sometimes lets us off the hook to to, to say, oh, actually, it's not us. It's the process and the way that people vote that doesn't allow us to win. Now, of course, you know, you can look at some systems. The Scottish system works pretty well, for example, having that kind of that constituency link, but also the kind of top up list. And I think there are things to look at that once we are in government. But the problem we have to overcome is the current system we have is first past the post. And that's what the next election is going to be fought on. And if we had progressive alliances in those seats where the Tories were otherwise, you know, benefit from splitting the vote, we would stop more Tories and we'd get a progressive government. And with Labour, Labour is the biggest beneficiary of that by miles. You'd get a bigger Labour victory if we were to do some kind of arrangement with people who broadly agree on the same stuff, but the party refuses to do that because it refuses to recognise that other people on the progressive side of politics, Greens and Liberal Democrats, have something legitimate to say that would strengthen us. We don't all agree on the same stuff and that's the way it should be. But actually, the policy set and the value set of those three parties is very closely aligned and we divide at our peril. This is why I love a party that's 20 points ahead and still able to have a massive row with itself <laughs> over most, most issues. <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicsover.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Neil Lawson, Morgan Jones and Abdi Duale. Thanks for all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tollhurst and this has been The Rundown.